Welcome to another edition of Cybersecurity Dispatch. This is your host, Andy Anderson. In this episode on the internet, nobody knows if you're a dog. We talk with Christian Fellini of Mob Security. We discuss his interesting path from a PhD in medieval history to an expert in computer science. And he shares his work with the Swiss voting system and how e-voting is alive and happening in that country today. I was reading through your background and you have an interesting background and being a history major myself, I kind of want to start there just to hear about your sort of interest in medieval history and and how that maybe led you to to this space. Okay, thank you. (laughs) Yes, I've always been interested in computer and in history. And when I started to go to university, I kind of tried to get into computer science and use history as a second branch. Mm. And they wouldn't allow that. Mm. <laughs> they told me to do math or physics as a second branch. And I said, oh, no, I'm not interested in that. <laughs> and then I asked the history guys, would you allow computer science as a secondary branch? And say, yeah, absolutely, go for it. <laughs> as far away from history as possible, because this opens your horizon. Yeah. That's very interesting for us. Because we have so, so many English literature, German literature, uh, people around. Let's have a change of pace. So that's what I did. And actually, I did very little uh, computer stuff at university. It was just a secondary branch. And then Mm -hmm. I really specialized into medieval history. I continued with a PhD on Dominican mysticism or German mysticism, which is kind of a hardcore uh, social history, church history, Mm -hmm. or theology thing around 1300. Mm. Uh, That is a fairly specialized field, I would say. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) uh, Very interesting, probably not in this podcast. Uh, (laughs) And during the PhD, I really grew tired of that, and I returned to my initial interest in computer stuff. Yeah. And I told myself, and every day I tried to run away from my PhD uh, and do computer stuff. Say, well, in the long run, you'll be happy to get more computer experience. And this might save your job after you finish your ivory tower PhD in medieval history. And that's how it worked out. I applied in a museum or two. I didn't get a job. But then I slipped into a small computer company, a local computer company, which did uh, Unix consulting. And I stayed with them ever since. So I've been 15 years with uh, NetNea. I'm a partner now. We're five guys running the company. And we do uh, network monitoring and security. And during uh, the period... I'm more and more specialized in security. So so I used to do uh, Unix system administration as a contractor. Yeah. And then I got exposed to uh, mod security early on, yeah. like uh, the module for Apache. So th- this is a web application yeah. firewall module, which started in about 2002 or three. And by 2005, I ran my first uh, Apache web server with mod security enabled and i got hooked uh, immediately and i stayed with that technology so technology wise i'm very deep into web server web application security and as time went on i started to look outside of this narrow technological field and start to talk to people about theory of security or uh, what they think about the industry how does this security industry 
work locally here in Switzerland, where I live, uh, started to build up a network. And and eventually, I, I got into be one of the co-leads of uh, the Mod Security Codewell Set project, which is hosted under the umbrella of OWASP, so the Open Web Application Security Project, and is now more a moderating role. So not so much technology anymore down to the screen, but more working with people. And I kind of see that's that's very interesting as well <laughs> yeah so i now i work deep deep in technology half of the of my work time and the rest of the time is organizing conferences talking to people writing blog posts stuff like that yeah i would say that's my the way how i got here <laughs> yeah no so many interesting things that i want to ask about <laughs> i mean i think just going back starting kind of with the medieval Kind yes. of history background. I mean, I think that that's an int- that's such an interesting time in kind of European history because you do have you sort of have the fall of these great empires and then the beginning of like formation of of some nation states and different fiefdoms and sort of control of you know different geographic regions and and individuals. I mean, if you sort of changed some of the words out, it sounds a little bit like you know, what's happening in the internet, you know, different kind of controls of spheres. And, you know, there's some, there's some common kind of languages. I mean, the church is sort of active, right? Connecting people to some degree, right? I mean, it's, you know, I certainly see the parallels, at least at sort of the, the grand scale. Are you, you finding that those sort of stories are running through your, you know, your assessment of how, how things are working? That is an interesting thought. I think you can make the argument that early Middle Ages were somehow organized in a more global way when you talk about big empires and then breaking down into smaller fiefdoms. So that would be something you could relate to a global free internet and then breaking down into smaller areas. We've called this the balkanization of the internet. So where you would no longer be able to access whole of the internet and if we talk about net neutrality net neutrality i think plays into that as well so uh, i think seeing big parallels between uh, older history and internet development it's a bold thesis yeah but there are some parallels perhaps yeah yeah that's true what I've found interesting in the work I did in medieval history, it is a period where like the layman or the small people, the non-nobles become much more important. Mm. It's around 1200, 1300, 1400s. The cities are, grow- are getting a lot of power and they're playing a role politically now. And especially within the church, there are now new monasteries built into these cities. Hmm. Uh, monasteries used to be a noble thing out in the wilderness for important people. And now suddenly you have sons and daughters of people from the city who start to, uh, they, they found uh, monasteries uh, in groups. And this is a movement which explodes. And it, it really explodes. Within 50 years, you have 10 times as many religious people like monks in monastery than you used to have 15 years before. So that's a huge moving, sweeping all over Europe. Uh, And I used to look at the social 
life and the social connections within these groups. And I think that that is very interesting and that yeah, working with people and power of people, it's a grassroots movement. And yeah. that's something which I still think very interesting. So when people get together and build something by themselves. And I saw this in, I see this in history on and again. And I think you can see internet, internet and technology as something similar to that. Or uh, the open source software is often a bottom up thing. Yeah, I mean, I definitely sort of, I'd love to kind of, you know, transition and hear how the, I mean, OWASP is, is such an organ, an interesting sort of organization and, and the sort of general open source community, you know, for many people who are kind of outside of the computer industry, they may not, you know, they see the sort of giant companies, you know, almost bordering on monopolistic kind of like control. <laughs> And, you know, they may not appreciate the sort of the power and the history of the sort of open source within that industry and sort of how that influences the adoption of technology and, and sort of the power of different groups and, and companies within it. I, I'd love to kind of get just your perspective on OWASP but, uh, and how maybe um, the Mod Security Project fits into that. Yeah, OWASP is a huge, huge organization with so many projects. In the core, it boils down to maybe uh, a dozen of flagship projects, which mm -hmm. are really actively maintained. Yeah. And our OWASP mod security core rule set is one of these. And as you just mentioned, it's actually it's an interesting thought or a way to approach this, the way you did it, because... This core rule set project is a rule set for web application firewalls. Yeah. And web application firewalls is a highly commercial, competitive yeah. market. So you have big, big security companies doing a lot of research and development to produce very expensive products, which they market globally um, or locally. It really depends a bit. And there is like a single open source offering which attempts also a multi-purpose or a general uh, WAF. And this is mod security, yeah. which is in its core an Apache module, but it also runs on Nginx and IIS. And this is the engine. And this uh, was developed by Ivan Ristich, who later founded SSL Labs. And this was acquired uh, by an Israeli company and later traded over to Trustwave, which continues it as an open source project but that's only the engine yeah. then you need to write the rules and they don't seem to be too much interested in the rules themselves so there is an open source project outside of trustwave who works on these rules and this runs under owasp so we really have a community here of people who say we don't want to rely on a commercial or proprietary offering for these rules um probably a black box and i think the commercial valves nowadays are quite black box in their nature but this mod security thing is completely transparent and these rules uh, really allow us to control exactly which traffic enters our web application and which doesn't and as it happens when you run uh, a security filter like that which is actually fairly complex 
and its rule set, then you get false positives. Yeah. So uh, you have legitimate traffic, which is suddenly blocked by your rules. And being completely transparent and open in nature, the core rule set of OWASP allows you to really see why a request was blocked, and then mm. you have the necessary tools to allow it in the future. Yeah. Well, this is a lot harder when you were on a commercial product, which is not so upfront about the rules which are actually hidden. And it gets a lot worse when you do machine learning and artificial intelligence, because then the machine decides on its own and doesn't really tell you why it made this decision. Right. <laughs> it, you're truly like getting into that sort of Kafka-esque kind of world of, you know, why is it doing it? Well, we have no idea. Talk to someone else, yeah. right? And you just, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it learned this by itself. Right. <laughs> Truly, I mean, the, the implications of of AI and machine learning are, you know, incredibly positive, but also quite scary. And in so many, I mean, I think all of us have seen the Terminator movies, right? So, so a lot of people just go right to there. But I think the other sort of potential scary scenarios that you think about are, are manifold, right? Just getting, you know, a driver's license or, you know, accessing your email or any of those sorts of things as you increasingly hand control to uh <laughs> to machines who you don't who the people who built them don't even know how they work anymore right it's it's frightening yeah, <laughs> yeah absolutely you know for someone you know our, our audience is kind of spans the range from like you know people who've been decades in the space to people who are newer to the world of security so i think it might be helpful just to take sort of you know 30 seconds and explain kind of how a firewall works or the different flavors of firewall? Because I feel like it's one of those terms that gets thrown around a lot. But if you asked, you know, yes. 10 people to define it, you might get 10 different answers. <laughs> I hope not. But I hope. Uh, Yes, a traditional firewall is a network firewall. And it comes with a, in a simple principle, even a fairly simple rule set, which says we block everything and then we open uh, web traffic. So we open the HTTP ports okay. to allow that traffic. That's fairly simple if you leave it at that. Um, a web application firewall is much closer to the web server or the browser, if you want. Yeah. So the traffic which uh, runs between the browser and the web server, the application server, is being inspected. And of okay. course, that that's really complicated traffic. That's a lot of stuff. Yeah. And then you need to make a decision if a given request, so this HTTP web thing is request-based, if a given request is benign or malicious. Yeah. And you have a limited uh, bit of context, and then you make your decision, or the rule set has to make that decision. And you want to be as secure as possible. Yeah. But you do not want to lock out any legitimate users. But on the other hand, you also do not want to let an attacker pass. Yeah. So you need to tell the two apart, and that's a tricky bit. Yeah. <laughs> because the attacker will try to look uh, innocent, yep. while as benign traffic can look really dangerous just because or because the developers of the application didn't really think of security. Yeah. Or they just didn't think of your funny rule set, yeah. who makes assumptions about benign and malicious. And this can get really hairy in details. Well, obviously it can. But on the other side, the core rule set is now in a state where we 
would say default installations usually just work. If you have false positives, so legitimate requests being blocked, that is rare and in between. And then we have to do the documentation to help you out what to do about it. And for someone who's who's not as sort of familiar with thinking through that rule set as you are, you know, what are the kind of top three to five things that might make traffic look malicious or not malicious? So, you know, obviously where that traffic, like the domain from where that traffic is originating, I know is is one that often gets cited, but walk us through kind of a few of those kind of core ones. Okay, we look in detail at parameters being transferred. So when you fill out a form, being the login form, a registration form, anything, anything, you send this to the server, and then we look at the individual arguments and try to make a decision. And we just had a fault where somebody was living at Union Street. There's nothing wrong about living at Union Street, but as it happens, Union is an SQL uh, keyword. <laughs> Okay. And it seems we had a poor rule which would alert on keyword union, mm. which happens to be a standard English word. Right. So this cost, it wasn't the keyword alone, but it was the combination of a, of a number and then union street and all combined. It made for a rare, but it made for a false positive in the default installation. Mm. So the rule was not good enough and we had to update this rule. Uh, and I think that that's a typical thing. Right. So we try to identify the SQL statements because that could be an SQL injection attack. Yeah. And these are really widespread on the internet. So we try to identify these and then at times we're a bit too aggressive. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So many fold, right? So where the traffic's coming from, potentially the, you know, is, are they essentially trying to put code where they should be just putting like text, like an address yes. or a name or whatnot, right? How do you yeah. think about, you know, one of the things I was down this weekend kind of talking with a lot of the election commissioners in the U.S. because that's uh, if you're reading any U.S. paper, right, like sort of top of mind right now is potentially election hacking. And so, yes. you know, they were thinking about, you know, challenges of how they're denying traffic and, you know, can we white, should we just be whitelisting access or blacklisting? And how do we think about Americans living, you know, typically we'd just say like any traffic coming from outside the U.S., we're just going to block. But then we have troops or individuals living overseas and they're actually trying to access our system so they can vote absentee you know, from Europe, from all over the place. How do you sort of think about in this world where where you are, I mean, just the explosion of kind of IP addresses and sort of, and, and also the tools to make people maybe not look like where they are versus where they might actually be sitting, uh, you know, sort of VPN and proxy services yeah. and all those sorts of things. Yeah, well, I think I, you cannot really trust an IP address on geolocation. But then when you are under attack, then maybe you don't really care too much any about, anymore about locking out people. Yeah. And I think that is especially the case with denial of service attacks. Yeah. So when everybody's firing at you, then you stop caring about individual IP addresses no longer being allowed to connect you because you want to keep up the majority of your users and that's usually domestic users. Yeah. Uh, I living in Switzerland, I'm a really a small country. Locking out the rest of the world does 90% of the job under an attack. Mm. So foreign Swiss nationals will no longer be uh, able to connect, which is a pity. But during an attack, Swiss companies usually accept that. Yeah. Because it, it, uh, 
Swiss traffic is usually something you can handle. I think that must be much more difficult if you're living in a big country. I mean, locking out non-US traffic kind of splits maybe half of the IP addresses. I don't know. So I don't think that's very helpful. And as you said, you, people do uh, Tor nowadays, VPN. So you cannot really trust an IP address. And yep. And I generally wouldn't trust them, the geolocation too much. On a more general level, you mentioned uh, whitelisting and blacklisting. So this rule set I mentioned is a blacklisting rule set. It tries to be generic in nature, yep. but it tries to identify bad things. Uh, turning it around and coming up with a whitelisting rule set, and this is what the network firewall uh, usually does, which I mentioned before, so everything is blocked, and then we allow two or three things. That is much more secure, yeah. Uh, and that's I generally advise people to do that. And I write rule sets like that as well. It's just very difficult to do with web traffic yeah. because that's so complicated. Yeah. Uh, but then, as it happens, uh, it's just interesting you mentioned e-voting. I'm actually working on a high secure e-voting project. E-voting is a very hot topic in, in Switzerland. Yeah. And while the rest of the world uh, seems to step out of e-voting right now and uh, pulling back, Switzerland is moving all in. Hmm. So our politicians think we have tested this for 15 years. And now let's really do this because we're Switzerland and we know how to do secure stuff. Yeah. And in the Swiss context, e-voting means online voting. So yeah. you vote from home over the internet. Yeah. That is something which sounds uh, dangerous for people outside Switzerland, but actually we do voting by mail on paper yeah. uh, in Switzerland. So like 90% of people have write that fill out the forms themselves and then put them in an envelope and send it by post. Yep. That's how voting works in Switzerland. So doing this electronically is not such a big step mm -hmm. as doing filling it out at home is already accepted. And in this uh, e-voting context, whitelisting seems to be a very good approach because voting is not terribly complicated from the application standpoint. I mean, you, you select a few candidates, don't you? So this is something where you can actually do whitelisting. While as running a full-blown web shop or an online forum with whitelisting is really, really hard. So I think you need to come up make up your mind how many resources you want to spend on security and then try to get as much security out of these resources as possible. And this can mean, yeah, here we do whitelisting, over there you buy a product and over there we source a, a service or we use an open source product which brings this. Yeah, there's no one single solution, right? It's really putting together Absolutely a number not. of them. Absolutely, yeah. Um, yeah, and I think we're past the point where you buy a product and you hope it solves your problems. It yeah. doesn't. No, no. It's with knowledge, experience, and the people who really have an idea how they want to secure something, and then they source the right tools. Yeah, there's a lot there. I would love to kind of just to circle back to to e voting because I, I it's something that I've just we've just been spending a ton of time thinking about talking about etc. So. One of the challenges, I think, in the U.S., I mean, there's two. So we actually, we have a decent amount of, of um, absentee voting as well, essentially vote by mail. Um, that's what we call it. Um, mm -hmm. And some states, you know, they're, they're seeing more and more of that uh, happening. So 
meaningful, I don't know the exact numbers, but, you know, 30, 40, 50% potentially isn't unrealistic. So, you know, one of the things, so uh, essentially the identification step there is that you, you know, it's somewhat tied to an address, right? So we're going to send this to your home, right? So not impossible to like, you know, to essentially, I mean, so so the the concern that we have is that, you know, you're essentially like the person who's voting is not the actual person, right? Like that you're having sort of fake people vote or you're creating individuals, right? Now with addresses, you know, you you start to see, well, it just becomes sort of logistically challenging, right? Because you got to you know, yeah. you got to somehow intercept those. Either you control a lot of PO boxes, although sometimes I don't know the rules whether you can send it to a PO box. But you now have to just control a lot of addresses and be able to accept mail, which is not impossible, but just logistically painful, right? It's just challenging uh, and potentially expensive. So, but then as you think about like essentially internet uh, voting online, you know, the ability to essentially accept a ballot. So, how do you kind of think about that step, essentially the identification step of people in an online world and making sure that that's kind of secure? And and I apologize if that was, if the question's not clear, (laughs) that's my fault, not yours. Okay, I think I can make sense of it. I, it's true it wasn't exactly clear for me, but let me <laughs> respond and then you can follow up. That's good. I think the identification and trusting somebody via the internet, that's one of the core issues, isn't it, yeah. in the virtual world? How was that joke? On the internet, nobody knows if you're a dog. Right, of course. <laughs> and I think that boils down uh, to, to e-voting as well. I think as long as it is tied to a paper ballot, which somebody sends home to you, an attacker would, would need to steal the paper ballots. Yeah. And actually, that is happening in Switzerland. Okay. And it's accepted. So we kind of, or every couple of years, something bad happens. And then there is a scandal. And it's always a local scandal. Yeah. And right now, we have one running where somebody stole like 70 paper ballots yep. and filled them out himself gotcha. and paint a signature. And they finally uh, said, no, that's always the same hand. <laughs> the signatures. And uh, he, he's likely to face jail time. Yep. Uh, and uh, that is a weakness of, of the system, yep. which is accepted in Switzerland. And I mean, uh, 70 votes. Okay. It doesn't usually turn an election. And as long as, the e-voting is tied to this mail letter being yep. sent to somebody at home. It will probably be limited to the same amount of fraud. Yep. Things get extremely different when we get rid of the paper yep. and send it via email mm-hmm. or any means of electronic transfer yep. and where we no longer identify somebody based on credentials paper, uh, printed on paper, yep. but credentials sent via any sort of text message. Yep. Uh, and Switzerland hasn't done that step. Okay. And uh, for very good reasons, because then things, fraud is getting much more easy to do. And you can pull this off, the stealing of ballots on the large scale. Yeah. While it's now on paper, you have a logistical problem. Uh, you would have to go to Swiss Post and try to steal uh, letters yep. on the central logistic platform or something. And, and that, that's kind of unlikely to pull off. Yeah. And people would notice when, if they don't get their paper ballot, then they notice, obviously. Yep. 
And it, a few of them might not, but, but then you, if you go into the hundreds, somebody will complain. So, I mean, I was hoping you had a solution for me. I, I was hoping you, you guys had figured it out. You're sort of no, where we are. I'm not, <laughs> no, I'm not solving U.S. Uh, voting problems, uh, unfortunately. Uh, you know, we got, we got time, you know. <laughs> okay, it's only a couple of years off, yes. No, I think there is very good research in the States. I mean, the scientists, they know all about it politicians just need to start to pay attention yep. and really do what I get the feeling all the scientists or scholars are agreeing what to do. It's just the politicians need to accept that now and, and get to work and bring up the resources or the funds to finance these more secure systems. And the whole question of paper ballot, yes, because if it gets physical, then it's hard to do fraud yeah. on a big scale. Yeah. Uh, didn't uh, Facebook just announce that they will uh, verify political ads via a mail postcard? Yeah, that was right. Isn't that uh, we're giving up on identifying people in the online world because it's too hard, too difficult, and we're falling back on a physical verification process? Yeah. Because this is known to work, and it has been working for hundreds of years. Yeah. That's why we're bringing it back for really hard problems. Yeah. And for 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 voting, I wouldn't trade this off. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, I think we need to keep this because here uh, it's democracy is at stake, and uh, that's really risky. And yeah. I actually don't see definite solutions to identifying people in the online world ruling out any possibility of fraud. I think we can't. We haven't found the systems that really work. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's, it's essentially, uh, you know, the, a second form. I mean, in some ways, it's like multi-factor authentication, right? That's your sort of yes. second form is that mailed postcard, right? And and the, and, and we, we know, you know, we know that the post is not 100% secure. But Again, as you mentioned, the, you know, the scale and the logistical challenge of doing it at a, at a, at a scale where you would, it would be statistically significant that you could kind of impact an election in a way that would change the outcome. Is it possible? I mean, we had a small, a small runoff in, in a state here, which was literally, you know, a tie, a tie, like zero vote, yeah, you know, yeah. difference. So it, not to say that it can't happen, but it just, it becomes challenging. The second piece, I guess, that I'd, I'd be curious about on the on the e-voting front is, um, you know, thinking about, so there's the identification step, but then there's also like the, you know, that the vote you cast is actually, that there's no sort of, there's nothing happening in that process itself, whether that was sort of a man in yes. the middle attack or, you know, how do you assure, in the US at least, you know, most of the, the voting systems like we're as they be go into an online world, where actually, again, paper is figuring quite prominently in that process. So, you know, you're optically yes. scanning the ballot. So you have essentially duplicate records, one on paper, one on one that becomes digitized. And so you knowing that the digitized records could be manipulated, but the very fact that you can always return to paper and you can audit and do those sorts of things makes the success of those digital kind of efforts at manipulation that much more challenging and, and potentially unsuccessful. So how did you guys think about if that online process is happening, the sort of duplicate record step? 
Well, I'm not really a cryptographer, and I'm not working on the protocols. I'm just securing sure. the web server. Gotcha. But the systems around here... <laughs> it's other people's used, problems. They, they work... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> True. And they work with return codes. So you enter the selection of your candidate, okay. and then the system returns a return code to you, okay. which you can check on your papers. So the paper brings an individual return code, which you can accept, expect when you enter that candidate. So like for every candidate, you have a personalized return code. Mm. And the man in the middle is not able to tell you this return code because mm. only the web server is able to tell you this. Gotcha. And then from a statistical viewpoint, it's very interesting that it doesn't take a lot of people to check this. Ben Adida, who worked a lot on open source e-voting software, he did a presentation last year at the Enigma conference where he would quote, like, about one in 1,000 people needs to check this code. Right. And then a fraud would surface. Right. If only from a million people, if a thousand people, if all the computer guys did this, then it would surface. They would notice right. there is something amiss. The return code is not what is written on my paper ballot. Someone's fishy. Uh, there must be a man in the middle attack. Yeah, interesting. So I'm clear, our listeners who aren't kind of familiar with that process. So I vote for Snoopy, right? You know, for president, right? Or for prime minister or senate, whatever, right? And and then the I submit that with my e-ballot and then it comes back. And then on, if I voted for Snoopy, I should get a code that says puppy, right? Or something, you know, cryptographically more, yes. you know probably unique, but essentially, and if that, you know, if, if Garfield was the other candidate, right. And I got back the code that said, you know, kitty, I'm like, whoa, 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 something funny is going on here. Right. And so. Absolutely. Gotcha. What is important here, that is your return code. Yep. So your friend would get a different return code. That is very important. Gotcha. And only the central application can know these codes and they're pre-calculated. And okay. then you need to make sure they're not being stolen, etc. But that's how the system boils down to this is the protection from the man. Gotcha. And so, literally every piece of paper, the, the same way it has a unique kind of like voter number that, that that's how I'm going to maybe log into the absolutely. system, right? Also, the codes are all unique. Yes. And so then cryptographically, yes. you have... And then, you know, just because some of our listeners are truly paranoid, right? How do you know that the, you know, that the central system that essentially holds all of that repository of codes hasn't been compromised, right? If they're able to do a man in the middle attack, you just say that they also, they would also have to own that central repository. Yes. Yes. Okay. Essentially that. Yeah. Yeah. And that is a question of democratic oversight. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. I mean, interesting, right? And you can think about redundancies that those don't sit next to each other, that the transmission doesn't go necessarily through that central repository. And yes. And you need multiple people joining uh, for the key. Yeah. So in the system I'm working on, uh, the, the vote is encrypted. Yep. And they're not able to decrypt your vote before the end of the voting period. Yeah. And then multiple people have to come together to join the key to decrypt the votes. Gotcha. And in this process, the anonymization happens. Gotcha. So the IP address and the vote are separated in this process. And it's only afterwards that they get to see the votes. Gotcha. Interesting. Yeah. And so you have you have that multiple 
you know, the image that we always think about sort of like multi individual sort of authentication is like, it takes two keys to like turn on the nuclear missile, right? Like that yes. sort of that sort of image. Yeah. Um, gotcha. You know, it sounds like you guys have done a lot of thinking there. I, where would um, if someone were to kind of see or read further on kind of what you guys are up to? Is there a place that they can do that publicly available? I think the e-voting documentation of Swiss Post is translated into English. Okay. So that would be a good place to start because okay. they they do a lot of uh, publications to explain this to people what they're actually trying to build. Yeah. And this uh, these systems are uh, are now being built. They're allowed to be used for a certain percentage of voters. Mm -hmm. And to go to 100% of voters, it takes additional certification steps. Yeah. And no system has done this uh, certification so far in Switzerland. Mm. Very cool. So this is active work. What I've just explained is actively being done. Yeah. What, or actually, what I just told you is already in place and additional security measures are being designed right now. Mm. What's, when's your next sort of major, for those of us who aren't in Switzerland and sort of not, not familiar with your yeah. political calendar, when's the next sort of <laughs> major vote that you'll start to see this stuff be used? Okay, you're maybe not familiar, but we're a kind of direct democracy gotcha. uh, in the sense of California, but then we vote like four times a year. Okay. So every Swiss citizen is voting four times a year. So we're constantly voting. Hmm. That's why we have so much experience with voting. And yeah. this is such an important thing. But, and then we also get a, we get to, to test this a lot because it happens four times a year. Yeah. <laughs> it makes it a lot easier than to elect a president every four years. Right. And our next major parliament elections are in 2019. Gotcha. So we're one and a half year away from the next major elections, but only four weeks away from the next uh, public vote. Wow. Has there been any sort of concern about sort of foreign adversaries attacking your system or anything like that? Yeah, that's part of the threat model. Yeah. Okay. But, but like historically, you haven't seen any. Like there's no... No, we're Switzerland. Okay. We're neutral. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> Good to know. Thanks for reminding me, uh, all of us, right? Well, you know, I mean, there's so much other stuff I would love to talk about, but I feel like I've been peppering you with questions. So is there anything you particularly wanted to kind of cover or let people know about? I mean, you know, I always think when to give you just an opportunity to, to talk about something that either you're excited about or want to make sure you get out in the in the world. Okay, what else could we cover? Now, actually, I like you asking questions, and I have plenty of time. <laughs> if, okay. Uh, you want to throw the ball, that's a lot better than me uh, thinking of good topics. Sure. It's been fun so far. So. Uh, no, it was great. I mean, particularly the voting stuff is just, I mean, it's so top of mind for what we've been, I mean, I spent my three days of a, yeah, of a holiday yeah. weekend sitting yeah. with election I, I think for, for the publication, you might want to cut this down a bit because it's really getting on and on. Oh. But generally, I think, yes, it's an interesting topic. Yeah. How That's about, um, yeah, and what, you know, what we might do, we can cut it down or we'll just make it like a multi-parter too so that somebody doesn't have like you know, yeah. 20 pages to read. But how about your DDoS stuff, right? So I'd love to kind of hear more about kind of the how you think about sort of strategies for, for stopping DDoS and maybe touch on some of the sort of the reverse proxy stuff as well. Okay, that's a good question. And now let me think what I want to tell you. Uh, <laughs> right, this is where you're like, mm, what can I say and what I can't? 
Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That's exactly the point here. Uh, let me put it this way. So uh, denial of service attacks where somebody or a group of people are flooding you with traffic yeah. is a constant threat on the internet. So you can do all sorts of attacks against somebody, but denial of service is one class of attacks which might al always work if it's big enough. Mm -hmm. With denial of service attack, you either attack bandwidth, so the, that site is no longer able to communicate with the outside world, yep. it's just completely jammed, or you you attack the memory of the servers, so mm -hmm. they run out of memory, they're no longer able to, to compute, or you attack the processor with a specially crafted request. Mm -hmm. And this is always a threat, and you need to protect against it. And then people don't. People are not protecting mm -hmm. against that, because it, it happens a lot on the internet, but then it's a big pond with lots of fish, and why would it hit you? Yep. So unless people have been attacked before, they tend not to protect against that. Yeah. denial of service attacks. And then uh, once it really happens, there's a lot of panic because nobody has ever seen the like, and it's extremely chaotic. Yeah. And you can count the dollars go out the windows, especially if you're an online shop, yeah. and you know one hour of downtime costs you so many mo so yeah. much money. So it's, it's really dangerous, and it's very good. You're well advised to prepare for that. And, and how you prepare for that? I think you need to know your architecture, and you need to know your weak spots. How do you learn about your weak spots? You need to do exercises. You need to try and do a denial of service attack against your site, mm -hmm. uh, yourself. Like with a lot of security things, you need to try out the attack and then you will learn if your defense works or it doesn't. But people are afraid of uh, simulating denial of service attack. That's how it's not done. That's how they don't know where the weak spots are. And when it hits, then they're surprised. Generally, you can cut down your service to be more lean, to be faster, to be mm -hmm. more resilient. So to, do, to make the best out of what you have, to make yeah. good use of your bandwidth or your servers. But this will obviously only take you so far. Yeah. And then it's also a resource problem. So it takes a lot, optimization takes a lot of time and a lot of resources and a lot more people. And then when you're no longer able to do this yourself and you need support, then you turn to a specialist who will handle the details for you and, and this will work like we are a content delivery network nowadays, okay. meaning you hand over your domain record to somebody else and they do a filtering of your traffic for you. Okay. And there are competing offerings there and you pay them like uh, annual fee or by the hour and you just hope that they are able to swallow, swallow the attack. What also works, and we've touched on this before, is for small countries to say, yeah, during the attack, let's just get rid of all the foreign traffic. Yep. And getting rid of all the foreign traffic, in the case of Switzerland, means getting rid of 99% of the phone, or getting rid of 99% of the internet. This means that foreign to your side are no longer able to, to connect. That is a pity, but that's acceptable during the attack, if yeah. you have a local domestic offering, and the attacker will realize that the fun is over because your site is staying up uh, up and online and there is no longer able to bring you down. And this is usually when the attack stops. Right. And experience shows 
in Switzerland where people work a lot with uh, geolocation and defense, the attacks stop within minutes or within hours hmm. very often. If and you then you allow the foreign traffic again and every, everything is fine. Hmm. It makes a hard cut to say, no, let's concentrate uh, on the domestic traffic. Somebody in upper management needs to make that decision. And it's not an easy decision. But uh, usually, or in my experience, this brings an end to the attack. But obviously, this only works when you can concentrate on local traffic or you have built up your whole setup across the globe and you're able to separate it mm -hmm. where you say, okay, we're trying to keep East Asia up and we allow Southern America to drop during the attack, gotcha. stuff like that. And you handle this with routing your traffic. And essentially you use like a cloud deployment or one of the brokers who essentially, who takes over your domain name and then sort of, that's some of the service they provide. They say, hey, you know, if this denial service yes. happens, we're going to be you know, we're going to spin up additional capacity in different cloud, public cloud providers, like all across the world. And so we can essentially, we can handle it or just yeah. make sure that they, they can't kind of overwhelm yes. it. But gotcha. Yeah. In the end, somebody needs to swallow the traffic and yep. then, uh, then they need to wash it. We call this washing of web traffic. And, and you do that just by like starting to cut off, like you start to identify essentially malicious traffic and saying and cutting it off based on like either the the ip address or the sort of nature of the activity right the nature of a activity as it happens most ddos attacks are still network based gotcha so you can look at the pattern of the network usage and a classical ddos attack extremely simple is we just open a lot of connections and then we do essentially nothing, but we open a lot of connections. And if it's a stupid server, he, he would just die because there are too many connections for him. And this support service, they would recognize that and say, that if somebody's only opening dozens or hundreds, thousands of connections, then we're just not, no longer accepting the IP address. And is that just, you know, that they start the handshake and don't finish it? Is that what they do? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's like I you stick your hand out and yeah. off the attack. Exactly. Too many hands to, uh, to shake. Right. Gotcha. <laughs> Good stuff. How about reverse proxy? So generally as an architecture feature or? Yeah, sort of um, for someone who's not familiar with the term, kind of what it is and what it does. Mm -hmm. I think just start there. Okay, sure. In a standard application architecture, you would have the core of your assets in the database. That okay. is very well guarded by multiple layers of security, yep. if you've done this right. And then in front of the application, in front of the database is the application server, which runs the, the application. That's yep. where the intelligence is. Yep. And then uh, you maybe don't want to expose this on the internet. I mean, things change quite a lot with the cloud. But let, let's stick to this classic view of we have an application server in front of a database, and we want to protect that, yep. that one. An application, a gateway server or a reverse proxy, which is a term usually used, is put in front of that. And it would separate the application server from the internet. It's a bit like a clerk in a bank. Yep. So that's the person you talk to as a customer. But that's not the person who gets to access the big bank safe. Yep. He doesn't have 
direct access to the database. Yep. Now, he's just a clerk in front with limited authority. He can take requests, go into the back office, and it's the back office who does all the advanced handling of the customer's request. I think right. that's a very good image. Yeah. And then they return the response to the clerk. He goes to the front and hands it over to the customer. And that's how, how reverse proxy works. Right. So he ac uh, accepts requests, goes to the backend application, a backend application processes the request, and the response is returned via the reverse proxy again. Uh, so it has a functionality architecture that it separates uh, the different servers, and it has a security functionality. If you use the reverse proxy as a web application firewall, so the web application firewall, especially in the case of mod security, is deployed on this reverse proxy server to do the filtering yep. of the request, identifying the malicious request. Yep. And now this goes on. There identification comes into play here. So you separate on a conceptual level, you have your authenticated users and your not authenticated users. Non-authenticated users could be anybody via the internet globally. Mm -hmm. And now you could say, we don't want to have unauthenticated users be allowed to access the application. Yep. And uh, they're only allowed to access the authentication service. Yeah. And afterwards, we connect them uh, via the reverse proxy to the application server. And now a funny thing happened. This setup is very, or it's a standard setup, which you do in Switzerland. Swiss banks are doing it like this. You go to the reverse proxy and you have to identify yourself on the reverse proxy. Gotcha. And that is like a school book setup. That's how you would do this properly. But then it's fairly complicated. And I tend to think that outside Switzerland, you have a different setup where the reverse proxy allows a narrow channel of authentication requests back to the application. So unauthenticated users are allowed to pass through the reverse proxy onto the central application server of the bank if we're talking about the online banking. Yep. And I think uh, that that is more risky, but the simpler uh, setup yep. because you have all the customer data in the same server uh, if yep. you want. And this uh, setup, so the Swiss standard setup is different that we do access layer or reverse proxy authentication very often. And this had on the industrial level an interesting uh, effect that non-Swiss companies have a hard time penetrating the Swiss market with their technology hmm. because they're not specialized in the setup. So within the small country of Switzerland, you have multiple providers of commercial reverse proxies yeah. that uh, support this special architecture. Yeah. And the big American companies are not really penetrating the mm. Swiss market and especially not the high secure market because they're not, they don't have the necessary experience to support this uh, architecture. Yeah. I'm, not, I'm not really sure if this is interesting to your audience, but I think it's an interesting fact. Do you think um, you no. can construct this differently? Is, do you think, are mm -hmm. you seeing sort of, particularly as you sort of are seeing just the increased you know, particularly, I think of kind of ransomware as a you know kind of an emerging threat in the space. I mean, the 
you know, and as we think about your analogy, it becomes perhaps a, a little bit cruel to think about what's happening. But, you know, the reverse proxy, our, our quote unquote clerk isn't worth that much and he doesn't have that much, you know, so if you ransomware him or you destroy him, right? Like you're like, okay, well, we'll just get it. We'll hire a new clerk, right? <laughs> so are you seeing this architecture kind of spread more widely or interest in it kind of increasing because of its potential to kind of isolate the more valuable pieces of the of the architecture and the database and the application? I don't know. And I don't think I have the data to really support yeah. it. Things are changing with the cloud. Yeah. So there are new architectures coming in. I don't think the cloud setups are more secure on the architectural level. I rather think that people are neglecting security on the architectural level because they think now we're in the cloud, somebody else is handling security for <laughs> us, which is, of course, absolutely not the case. Right. But it, it, you could get this idea by uh, look, uh, watching advertisements. Right. Uh, but you're even more exposed in the, in the cloud, and you would be well advised to take care, good care of your architecture. Touching on ransomware, yes, I think a simple reverse proxy in the cloud, I mean, that would be a container, and you just throw it away if it gets uh, exploited or corrupted or you do it in a way where you say no we replace the reverse proxies once per hour yeah why not i mean i, I think that would be a, a smart move if you have the resources to do that then you don't really care too much anymore right. but then again if you have a complicated setup where this reverse proxy needs to do authentication as well then it's probably a more expensive clerk which you're not replacing so easily right invest more resources into it and then you need to take better care of it <laughs> he's a yeah. valuable clerk because when he does authentication then he yeah. has he has access to a database which has the credentials and and identification yeah. of those individuals yeah. right so there is yeah. uh, usually usually not direct access but he has some means to access right. data yeah um is it essentially like if you think of that reverse proxy is it possible that he has essentially so he he essentially has access to two different databases or applications one would be the identification application and, and database and the other is essentially whatever the actual customer data or whatever the the main what's going to happen yes. post yes. post identification that's kind of how the architecture looks. So it's like two-sided. He has yeah. two bosses that he that he talks to. First, the one that says, "Is this the guy?" and then uh, or the gal, and then the other. The next is like, "Okay, well, he's been. We gave him the thumbs up. Now he can actually talk to the to the next person." Is that that sort of how it's working? Yeah, that's exactly how it's working. Yeah. Very cool. Well, Christian, this has been great. Uh, you know, uh, you know, really just interesting stuff that you're working on, and I think you know, I, I appreciate you kind of explaining concepts in a way that I think, you know, I really, I was talking with somebody else and they said, uh, you know, really, I, I want to explain things in a way that like my mom can understand. So I think you definitely passed that bar, right? That I think my mom- <laughs> Thank my, you very much. Right? That's what and, I try to do. <laughs> <laughs> and that's a huge compliment, I think, to be able to avoid jargon and make it understandable and approachable. But at the same time, I don't feel like we we stayed at a surface level. You know, I don't think we just, we didn't really get into kind of the how things actually work. We just managed to do it in a way that was um, that was understandable, which is really valuable. <laughs> yeah, very cool. That's uh, one of my ideas. I think you need to dig into technology to really explain security, but you need to do it in a way that non-techies are able to grasp it. Yeah. 
And technical people at times have a hard time doing that. But as I have a not very technical background initially, that's what I'm bringing into this industry. So I'm an arts and humanities scholar in the end, and we learned to explain things. Yeah. And I thank you for the compliment. Yes, I think I tried to to make it really understandable, and I'm glad this worked out in this interview. Yeah. No, that's great. So I would love, you know, anything you think you'd love to kind of like link to. So I can link to any of these, you know, why don't you follow up with kind of any resources that you think would be interesting, particularly like that Swiss Post voter stuff. Um, yeah, let's do that. I, I'll send you a couple of links. That'd and be great. Then you pick the ones which you, you think are interesting. Yeah. yeah wonderful. Uh, you know, if you find yourself in the States um, anytime soon, I owe you like several, several beers or glasses of wine <laughs> or coffee or whatever your kind of poison is. So <laughs> That would be so nice. Yeah. Awesome. It was great talking to you. Yeah, this was great. And I'm in. Thank you very much, Andy. And we'll hear from one another. Yeah. Great. Sounds great. Cheers. Cheers.